primarily here concerned with the Israeli Supreme Court case, the landmark case of 1998, in which Israel declared all forms of torture and all forms of cruel and human or degrading treatment and or punishment as illegal. They don't use this term unconstitutional because Israel doesn't have a written constitution. They do have a basic law, and if you've done the reading carefully, you'll understand there's something like a constitution that's called a basic law, but my understanding from everything I've always understood is that Israel's constitution, like New Zealand, like the United Kingdom and two other countries who I can't name off the top of my head, have unwritten constitutions. So it's all done from tradition. And of course, I would say uh, that for most countries, this is not going to work because you don't have a basic consensus on what, how the government should work, how, what are the rights of citizens, how do citizens relate to societies. But if you've got a country where you do have that kind of consensus, an unwritten constitution is better. Why might it be better? Because it, it, it reflects a consensus on the rules of the game. And therefore, it increases the legitimacy of the system for people. And so, and, and, and if there is, a, a re, in fact, a consensus, then you don't need to have so many important disputes resolved by a court. Nevertheless, in this case, it's very interesting to me to read this case, which is not done on the basis of, of a written constitution and claims not to be a form of judicial review. So if, I, I certainly urge you to read the case uh, and the analysis of it in the, in the reading that follows because essentially um, the reasoning which is fourfold in nature uh, is based on premises about the Constitution but because they don't have judicial review formally it's technically not a constitutionally based decision. Well first let's go back in time and history. Obviously all of you are aware that the Israeli-Palestinian crisis and before that its relations with its neighboring states has been one of extremely high conflict. And uh, Israel's uh, neighbors have never accepted its right to exist. Then with the uh, Camp David Peace Accords of 1978, uh, Egypt recognized Israel's right to exist. Uh, sometime later, Jordan recognized Israel's right to exist, but none of the other countries do. And um, there were several intifadas, uprisings on the West Bank, where it started more recently in the Gaza Strip, which is now called Gaza, because it's been returned to the Palestinian Authority, in effect, by Israel when it withdrew about three years ago this spring. Um, there was a, a int the first uprising was just kids throwing rocks. The second, which took place in the mid-1990s, in reaction to the Camp David peace accord, excuse me, in reaction to the Norway peace accord, which is the second set of peace agreements that was between Yitzhak Rabin, who was later assassinated by an Israeli fundamentalist terrorist student, Yigal something or other, I've forgotten his last name. Um, the second uprising was involving suicidal terrorism into Israel by Palestinians, a shocking development. Uh, the rise of religious as opposed to secular terrorism that had been practiced earlier by the Palestinian Liberation Organization and other terrorist groups in that period of time. And basically what they're saying was, we don't recognize the representative 
uh, Yasser Arafat, who is a secularist, to, to make a peace agreement which is designed to evolve to a recognition of Israel and a normalization of relations in return for the creation of a Palestinian state. And a year later, after those 1993, I think September was the month of 1993, when uh, the three leaders, Arafat, Rabin, and the other Israeli leader was Shamir Perez, uh, they got the Nobel Peace Prize for all of this. Uh, and then at Tabas, I think it's the name of the town in Egypt, uh, they had a subsequent negotiation. And the prime minister of Israel, who came from the Labor Party, who was a former general, uh, whose name I'll, it'll come to me in a second, but anyway, he offered uh, what he said was 95 to 98% of the West Bank in return for recognition of Israel and various monitoring agreements uh, to uh, make sure that, it, you know, that, that the two nations would demilitarize, reduce the threat, uh, and, and basically have the kind of relations that Egypt and Jordan has had with Israel since that time. And Arafat walked away and initially sent his own terrorists, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, which were secular terrorists, to commit suicidal terrorism. Oddly enough, um, this terrorism was not followed by terrorism by Hamas the next two years. Hamas actually respected um, a ceasefire agreement, largely because, um, I don't know, it was tactical. But, um, and I don't have the exact dates precise, but. The point I'm making is that when Arafat rejected the proposal there and responded with terrorism, Israel has never decided to negotiate seriously with the Palestinians since that time. There was a small meeting at the end of the Bush administration at Camp David to try and do something and didn't go anywhere. Uh, the, uh, the current Obama administration has also tried to negotiate but hasn't gone anywhere. And so Israel's bottom line is, you know, you've got to stop terrorism. And in particular, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade this was a group linked to the Palestinian National Authority, which had inherited governing authority of Israel. Um, and so Israel has faced a situation now that's arguably worse than the situation they faced in the 60s and the 70s when Jews and other Westerners were uh, sometimes taken as hostages, airplanes were uh, hijacked, boats were hijacked, uh, the Kili Laro boat was hijacked and uh, an old elderly uh, Jewish man from the United States in a wheelchair was dumped over the edge of the boat. Now you have suicidal terrorism, which is essentially a situation where deterrence can't wor work, a situation where uh, there's no real defense. Um, I mean, you can reduce the scope of it, as the Israeli wall has done, but you know, it's a very highly efficient. You lose one person and you kill 12. Whereas if you want to survive, you've got to bring in two or three people. Someone's got to do the getaway car. Someone's got to plant the bomb and shoot it off. And everyone's got to pull apart. Uh, and the chances are you know, of, of shooting off the bomb are less, less likely. And you might have three casualties or three loss of people. Plus, you run the risk of being captured and then being interrogated and revealing the information. Now, from the Palestinians' point of view, as all of you also are doubtless aware, uh, the existential threat of Israel doesn't seem very uh, a big deal. They say, for every one of us, for every one of them that gets killed in a suicidal terrorism operation, 12 or 15 of us get killed. And that's because Israel has more power. 
It also happens in part because Israel attacks uh, terrorists according to the legal doctrine of collateral damage, which says that collateral damage is legal so long as it is minimized if the uh, A, the attack is proportionate, B, is directed at the terrorist or the, the, the combatant, uh, and C, is there's no other alternative. These are the basic principles that we hear mentioned over and over again in our book on torture. Uh, but from the Israeli point of view, this is all Western biases, uh, all designed to promote the interests of the powerful. And the bottom line is they're more powerful than us. They kill more of us than we kill of them. Uh, the terrorist attacks are just ways of getting concessions. It seems to work. While generally Israel doesn't negotiate with terrorists, and generally they don't exchange prisoners. Thus, this uh, young soldier who was captured about three years ago, Gilat, uh, has remained in, within Hamas's arms for the last three years. And there's been no uh, corresponding release of political prisoners or terrorists who are criminals, however you want to describe them, on Israel's part to return them to either Hamas on the Gaza Strip or uh, the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank of the Jordan River. Uh, in any event, um, from Israel's point of view, given that it's surrounded by enemies, even with two countries having made peace, given that you have a wave of suicidal terrorism, which at the time of this case in 1998 uh, had reached a shocking and unprecedented level for the last couple of years. The Israeli Supreme Court had received numerous petitions from Israeli human rights groups uh, asking for a review of the GSS's interrogation uh, policy, the GSS for state security, oh, GSS, um, I don't know how you write it in Hebrew, but uh, was the organization that was given uh, extraordinary powers by the Landau Commission. Uh, can anyone tell me what the Landau Commission was? No one did the reading? Absolutely no one did the reading? Yeah, um, yeah I guess he was like the former Supreme Court president. And they came up with like this, with these four, these four things that they were saying was like important to, uh, that was important to interrogating. Okay, what did, they, what did it say? I know you got the page open, but do you remember what they said? Basically? No, I don't remember. Okay, so nobody in the class did the reading at all? Okay, I, you know, it's your education, and to get an education, you need to come to class prepared. I realize all of you have lots of things going, and it's really hard, but, you know, it's, I guess, you know, it speaks for itself. You get out of your education what you put into it. Okay. And that's, you know, it's one of the reasons the midterm, the average grade, you know, for an A, it's a 65, as people don't do the reading. And, you know, I really don't think that's my fault. And I'm encouraging you. I'm not condemning you. I'm not blaming you. You're not the first class. In fact, this is true of almost all my Georgia State classes. And I think my colleagues, it's also true that most people don't do most of the reading. If you go to law school, you've got to be totally prepared. Because I call on any one of you to recite the facts of the case, the holding of the case, and to compare and contrast it with other cases. And that comes for a big shock for a lot of people because it may be the first time in their life they've actually come prepared for every single class. And you want to sit in some law school classes in Georgia State. Just go in and sit in any one of them or go over to Emory. You'd be amazed how well prepared. I mean, it's not lectures. It's all question and answers. Professor asks questions and you, professor doesn't, professor may sum up at the end, but it's both basically basic, making you think for yourself on your own two feet about what you've mastered. 
Okay, and that's called the Socratic technique because Socrates in Plato's Republic asks questions and asks people to think on the basis of his answers and he keeps asking questions. And I would prefer to hold the class that way. I really would. Um, it also would, the class discussion would be a lot better and you probably would enjoy it more than just listening to me or maybe not, I don't know. What would, what would you prefer? I'd be curious. Do you prefer to have a lot of discussion? Yeah, I mean, I try to encourage discussion as much as I can, but if you don't do the reading, then the discussion is kind of like what you think based on what you've heard the last five to ten minutes, as opposed to what you've mastered before class. So think, think about this in terms of your own intellectual development, your own skills. Uh, you, you learn how to learn on your own. And if you don't do the learning on your own, then basically what you're doing is sitting in class and taking notes and taking tests and writing papers. But the big reason why Georgia State students don't do well in the GREs and the MCATs and, and these other standardized tests is not, oh, I don't do well in tests. The sad thing is, you're just as smart as the kids at Harvard. But the only difference between the kids at Harvard and the kids at U is that their parents probably are rich and said you've got to learn how to read. And your parents maybe are not rich and didn't say you had to read. And they let you do Xbox and everything else. Uh, which is what kids do, and it's what my kids do, and I can't force my kid. My kid doesn't read a book, hasn't done any homework. He's in eighth grade, he's got that one stitch of homework in eighth grade. So he's going to get 500 in the SAT too. But he, like all of you, could get 800 or 750 if you just outread a couple hours a night with everything turned off, undivided, no attention, uh, no multitasking, etc. Um, and, you know, it is discouraging for me, actually. <laughs> that you know, people can't find the time to do the reading. Anyway, when you think about this class, the reason I'm lecturing more is because you haven't come prepared. It would honestly be my strong preference to have everybody be prepared. And believe me, I give you all A's if you all came prepared. All right, let me get back to this. Um, the Landau Commission was 12 years earlier, and what it did was uh, Landau was, as you said, the uh, former Supreme Court Justice, and he uh, concluded that uh, the use of coercive physical means, even cruel means, could be taken, uh, and could be taken not on the basis of the necessity defense, but on the basis of the GSS's own necessity and, and, and recommended in a confidential section of the report to have uh, secret guidelines that would be reviewed annually by a commission, also operating in secret, to make sure that uh, it was achieving the purpose of the questions. So this was roughly 1988 and for, or 87. Then for the next decade, human rights groups in Israel and others were complaining terribly about this first. The, the commission's recommendations were secret. The government was following the recommendations, but no one knew what the recommendations were. Uh, and gradually leaked out the kinds of uh, interrogation techniques that had been used. Um, OK, so the Israeli court came up with four major forms of technique uh, for its interrogations. Anyone know what they were? <coughs> No one did last week's reading either. No one has any idea? You're talking about the sitting on the chair with your, uh -huh. your hand behind. What was that called? Uh, 
Shabak. I mean, I, I read it. I don't know how to pronounce it, but that's what it sounds like. The Shabak position. What was the first? No. Uh, the Shabak position is used uh, was not when you're being interrogated. See this before? This is just between interrogation, and the purpose supposedly was to keep you from making eye contact with any of your fellow detainees, and having also, you know, to loosen up to break begin the preparation of breaking the will of the person. So the chair is bent over like this. You got a sack over your head. The Supreme Court said you could barely breathe. You could sometimes be suffocating. One hand, you're handcuffed like this, but one hand in front of the chair, one hand in the back, head over, and they're blasting loud, probably rock music, but loud music to, on the theory that you can't here when your, your neighboring detainees are nearby. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie Battle of Algiers. That's certainly a movie worth seeing or go look at the excerpts on YouTube. That's about the French uh, anti-terrorist campaign in Algeria, in Algiers, in the Kasbah section uh, when there was an uprising during the, around 1958 as the Algerian National Liberation Front was fighting for independence from France. Algeria was the most important colony the one they really didn't want to give up, having lost Vietnam in the 1950s, having developed a theory of torture in Vietnam that didn't work, they wanted to perfect it in Algeria. And in this prison, you know, the prisoners would start screaming and howling this, this Algerian ethnic howl, which I can't do, but which you hear in the movie. It's very spooky and very creepy and very effective. And I think it disoriented the French quite a bit. So the Israelis didn't want any of this to be going on. If you get in the Shabak position, it's an awful uh, situation. So the Shabak position is not when you're being interrogated. It's merely to exhaust you, break your will, um, and design, theoretically designed to prevent communication. Now, that, the Supreme Court said, is illegal for a number of reasons. First, uh, if the purpose, if there are legitimate purposes, and this is the main point of this case, then you have to, again, follow the rules of proportionality, necessity, civilian immunity. So in this case, you know, you'd have to do the minimum amount of actions necessary to prevent communication between detainees or to prevent them from seeing. So presumably, you'd use a small blindfold if it was absolutely necessary to close the eyes, and not a complete hood, not face down, which, by the way, you know, the blood's going in, down into your head. That could cause certainly disorientation, sleeplessness, exhaustion, and humiliation and cruelty. Um, again, the Supreme Court is starting with the pre premise that torture and cruel and human or degrading treatment or punishment is illegal because Israel had ratified the Convention Against Torture, which was promulgated in 1984. Uh, and I don't know the year that they ratified it, but by 1998 they would ratified it. And it violated uh, presumably Israeli law to some extent because Israeli law did not provide for any of these techniques. And again, these were regulations of the GSS on how it would conduct its regulations based on the Landau Commission, which basically authorized the use of coercive techniques when it was necessary to get information. Um, so they said the Shabak position was way over the top, that in and of itself, any one of its major components. The handcuffing, which you know normally handcuffing is necessary, right? But if you're handcuffed like this, 
it can basically, you know, cause bleeding, uh, more than a lot more than harm than just mere discomfort. Uh, that having your head down for hours at a time, I've never done that. Have any of you ever had your head forced down for four hours or eight hours? Um, that was clearly un, unacceptable. Um, having the loud music wasn't necessary. I mean, if you want to prevent the other person from hearing, you could put in earplugs, for example. It didn't say that, but presumably that would be a, a more s simple technique to get uh, these uh, matters forward. And most importantly, the fact that all four of these were put together made certainly the concept of, of this Schabach position uh, I think this is how it's spelled. In any event, it's a transliteration of a Hebrew alphabet, the Shagbach position. All right, the second and the most famous and the one that was used most uh, was shaking. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to ask you to spell it. Um, shaking. What is shaking? Anyone know? If you have the book, you can open up and look. All right, this is this is not just shaking somebody, man. This is shaking the person's head. And they, you know, said this causes brain damage. And they just said this is completely unacceptable and illegal and not to be taken in any way to be permitted. Uh, in addition, you know, it wasn't clear that even moderate shaking would see the would serve a legitimate purpose. Now note, in these first two, which are the two most important of the four that are described, has the court distinguished between torture or the other part of the convention, cruel and human or degrading treatment or punishment? It hasn't. From the court's point of view, the treaty bans both. And so it's not necessary to make the distinction. Remember from a previous lecture that in the European Court of Human Rights case that involved uh, basically Ireland, it was Ireland versus the United Kingdom, that is England and Britain and France and Britain and Scotland and Northern Ireland, um, the European Court of Human Rights held that torture is always banned, but upon occasionally CID or CID, the whole uh, abbreviation, um, could be acceptable on grounds of necessity. But then the court said what England was, what the United Kingdom was doing, what constituted torture for the most part, and that was completely banned. The Israeli court, in this famous decision, and I think it's the first country, at least that I know of, that had a case on torture. I mean, the United States, its torture has been illegal for a long time. Torture is not found in the U.S. Constitution. Cruel and human degrading, cruel and human, cruel or unusual punishment is banned. So theoretically, the U.S. Constitution it's just taken in terms of its text, does not ban cruel or unusual uh, treatment for the purposes of interrogation or revenge, only for punishment. I'm sure the court doesn't, well, I don't know what the court would do. It's pretty hard to predict, and it's not necessarily to say which it does. But the, the point here is that in the torture convention itself, it provides for no necessity defense for torture. We all talked about this. Everyone remember necessity defenses, right? Is it worth reviewing? Let me review it just in case. Uh, we talked about it both in terms of the code of the International Criminal Court. We've talked about it in terms of these cases. But code-based systems, unlike common law systems, 
different from ours, have a practice of, in extremely unusual situations, obviously if you meet the requirements of necessity, proportionality, and civilian immunity, uh, but in a, a rare situation, someone could be found, could be convicted, or theoretically would have been convicted, convicted for, for a crime if it was necessity uh, and if it was necessary for protecting the country, basically, protecting the uh, bodily, against bodily harm or murder or killing or any of that sort. And the Israeli code includes a statute from the Knesset, which is the name of their parliament, that has a necessity defense to save the Israeli public from bodily harm. And it was on that basis of that statute that the Landau Commission said it was appropriate to go forward. Now, the Israeli court made some important uh, adjustments to that. Uh, the most important was to say the necessity defense, like all such defenses in code-based systems, is not an authority to do something. And it does not even regulate what is legal or illegal. It's just something you throw in in the end on a very, very rare situation if, for example, the law just isn't working right. It's analogous to international law, which has a principle called jus cogens, which you don't, I won't test you on, but I think it's, it's interesting and illustrates the point and maybe you might want to use it in your moot court, although I don't think it would come up. Jus cogens is, um, if you've studied any international law, is a peremptory norm. It says if, for some reason, there's no prohibition or no clear rule in a treaty or in customary international law, and it's obviously illegal, then it's illegal. So to give you an example, uh, through the mid-1990s, rape, R-A-P-E, had not been banned by any treaty. The Geneva Conventions had banned assaults on the dignity of women. I don't know if that's the exact word, but words like that. But no one had been going around prosecuting rape. Of course, no one had been going around prosecuting any international crimes until the mid-1990s. Uh, and the court uh, then ruled that rape as an instrument of warfare done on a systematic basis as opposed to an individual acting on his or, his or her own. Uh, that kind of war, rape as a uh, war strategy or tactic is banned under use Kogans because they couldn't find absolutely clear evidence from either any treaty or any customary international law norm. So the necessity defense is analogous to use Kogans in the sense that you can't find any justification for finding someone not guilty in any statute or any code in the base of code-based systems. And as we know, the International Criminal Court has the exact same necessity defense that you can find in Article 31 of that statute. And we'll hear a lot about that in our moot court case. But the Landau Commission arguably misused the concept of the necessity defense uh, although it was found in Israeli code, and the Israeli code may not be typical of every civil law country, that is the majority of countries in the world, but it basically said, no, that's an authority to do something. In other words, that is prospective. That's before the action takes place. You're specifically authorizing these illegal activities. And what the Israeli Supreme Court said in this decision was, this is not a uh, prospective 
rule permitting something, it's a post hoc, that is retrospective, that is after the fact, based on the circumstances in a particular situation, and in that situation only, without establishing any legal precedent or any general rule, that particular coercive technique, in the case of interrogation techniques here, but analogous to other situations, uh, you could justify it in that situation on a moral basis. And so what the Israeli Supreme Court decided in the 1998 case was that we are absolutely declaring the Shabak position, the shaking technique, and the other two techniques that were stated in the case uh, as being illegal. But it said it may be and we're not ruling that way in this case, but we're not going to say that it's always going to convict somebody because we're going to maintain a necessity defense only in retrospect and so that you know, it essentially is not appropriate for the GSS to be planning to use these activities routinely. And nevertheless, uh, the article after the case that is written by Miriam Gur Ariyeh, chapter 10, finds fault with the decision. Now, she doesn't go as far as some people would say. A lot of human rights groups criticize the 1998 decision as saying there should be no necessity defense, period. There should be an absolute ban of torture always, and that it's never justified. It's a use Kogan's norms uh, that goes beyond anything that might be read into the torture convention, which might offer a necessity defense not for torture but for something less cruel and human or degrading treatment or punishment. Uh, she doesn't go that far. She also agrees with the Supreme Court decision that an absolute ban uh, is not practical. She agrees with the Supreme Court that says that Israel uh, faces an ex existential norm. She agrees with the court that said uh, essentially Israel has to face not a balancing task because we want to make this activity illegal. We want to make it the rare, very rare exception. Uh, but what does she do? Does anyone know what her argument is? Yeah, self-defense rather than necessity. Okay, what does that mean? That's absolutely right. I think it just means that you have to be personally or like you have to be in danger of being like blown up or being. That's about half of it. That's absolutely right. Okay, this was done on the basis of the necessity defense, which is found in the Israeli code. And what she says is, the problem with the necessity defense is, that means you could torture anybody who has nothing really directly involved, but just happens to have the information, most typically a family member, right? So, you know, just being married to somebody, you know something's up, right? And you know your husband's been off having meetings, Etc. Etc. Well, all you got to do is go in and capture the kid or the or the or the wife and torture her on the grounds of necessity. And she says, obviously, you should only be able to do this against the person who knows the information. Now, you could make the utilitarian argument that she's wrong because if she's got the information, whatever she's you know we're not murdering her. She you know you can use the logic of the terror wielding state that says, you have a choice, right? You can cooperate. And the amount of lives that we will save will vastly outweigh the number of lives 
that will be harmed. In this case, one person who's getting a little pressure. Um, now, could you use the Schabach position under the necessity defense? You could. Could you use shaking under the necessity defense? Maybe you could if there was no alternative. Now, the, it's unclear. It's ambiguous because they said, on the one hand, Schabach and shaking are always absolutely banned. But on the other hand, it could be grounds for some coercive techniques on the grounds of necessity. I think the implication of the court decision is you could do something, but probably Schabach would not be, that would be overkill and therefore disproportionate and therefore unacceptable. The Israeli Supreme Court decision, though, also doesn't specify what is legal and what is illegal. And that's, I guess, to its credit, if you believe in reducing the amount of torture, because what it says is it's up to the Israeli uh, Knesset, its legislative branch, to explicitly give authority to do these things. And in this statement, the Israeli Supreme Court is really reaffirming that even though they feel this kind of cruelty is totally unacceptable in a civil law country without judicial review, which is different from England, even though Israel was a British colony, wasn't a British colony well, since World War I, the Versailles Treaty, but it basically said, you know, we uh, have separation of powers, we don't have checks and balances, we don't check the legislature. If the legislature wants to give explicit authority, the legislature perhaps can do that. Now, it would be interesting from my point of view to see how the Israeli Supreme Court would rationalize or reconcile the contradiction between the fact that Israel has ratified the torture convention and the Israeli code would contradict it. In the United States, we have rationalized this contradiction in the following way. Uh, and we'll, we'll study this again when we study common laws in the second half of the course. But we have a doctrine called self-executing or non-self-executing treaties. And when the US Senate ratifies a treaty based on Supreme Court decisions since the early 19th century, uh, it is assumed that a treaty is non-self-executing unless the Senate says it's self-executing. A self-executing treaty is a treaty that can be actionable in the courts without enabling legislation. This creates a rather, I would say, perverse, but at least contradictory practice in US constitutional law, which basically says if the US Senate ratifies a treaty, it doesn't mean anything. Bottom line, you can't go to court to get justice unless the legislature subsequently enacts legislation that gives jurisdiction to the courts. And the United States generally doesn't give jurisdiction for human rights cases. So we have this paradoxical situation where Article 6 of the US Constitution says that, supreme, that treaties are the supreme law of the United States. But the supreme law of the United States is not a basis in US constitutional practice for getting justice from the courts. And oddly enough, the originalists like Scalia and Thomas are at the forefront for maintaining this constitutional practice, probably on the grounds of a super precedent, since this precedent's been around for almost 200 years. 
But still, the original intent of the framers is very clear in Article 6. It says treaties are the supreme law of the United States. Now, to further complicated matters, in the United States, if you can prove something as part of customary international law, that is, uh, if not governed by a treaty, then you can sue in court. And so we have this paradoxical situation where something's written down and approved. You can't, even though it's clear. And if something is unwritten and therefore unclear, but you can somehow prove that countries follow that norm in practice and regard it as a legally binding ob uh, obligation, then you can sue. But of course, it's extremely hard to prove that. Now, oddly enough, in the Rasul case, the United States, that's sorry, the Hamdan case, 2006, the U.S. Supreme Court held that the Geneva Conventions under Common Article 3 are binding, but they're binding because they're part of customary international law because these Geneva Conventions were stated as a codification of what is customary international law as opposed to a treaty. So my interpretation of this U.S. Supreme Court decision is they further refined this doctrine of non-self-executing treaties to say that, number one, a treaty that merely codifies what is part of customary international law is not treated as a treaty. And secondarily, we have the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is the enabling legislation for effectively what is common Article Three, which are the universal norms in the Geneva Conventions. Now, I, I explain that all to you now, not because I'm going to test you on the midterm. I'm not going to test you on this part of US law, although I may, in the final exam, when we go over it in more detail. But what I am saying here now is that uh, countries like Israel and the United States, and perhaps most countries, in trying to make decisions about what is constitutional and what is not constitutional, have a very complicated process and in the United States, like in Israel, US Congress can take a norm of customary international law and then say, we don't follow that anymore. And so now we have a doctrine in US law that has also list, existed for several centuries, which basically says that we are bound by customary international law and we're bound by treaties. But we're not bound by any treaty that's non-self-executing and there's no enabling legislation. And we're not bound by any customary international law obligation where the Congress has decided to remove the United States from any obligation. So if you've understood what I've said, you've understood as much as more than any graduating law student understands. But I think uh, it's important to think as deeply as possible on these problems because it also under shows you how, in a domestic court, deciding important questions involves not only international law, but also domestic law and also constitutional law. So what I'm saying now is that the Israeli Supreme Court, in banning torture, said that a statute, there's no statutory basis for doing these things. Therefore, they violate an international uh, treaty that Israel has ratified, but implying that if Israel wants to make these necessity defenses actually authority and make them prospective rather than retrospective, the Israeli legislature can do that even though Israel has ratified a convention which would say that's illegal. 
And this is the practice of democratic countries, obviously with imperfections, including our own, highly developed, westernized, etc. But you can see how if someone is an Arab scholar or someone sympathetic to uh, regimes that are enemies of Israel or enemies of the United States, or at least are non-aligned or non-partisan, or even if you're an objective scholar in the United States, you'd say, well, the West pretends to be so civilized and banning torture, and torture is illegal in all these countries, but Israel's got a necessity defense, and the United States has got the non-self-executing treaty doctrine, and the charming Betsy Supreme Court decision, which basically says the US Congress can exempt us from any customary international law obligation. And yet now we have the Hamdan case in 2006, which is kind of changing a little a foot in the other direction, which says, well, if you've got domestic legislation, it may be enabling, but more to the point, it is part of customary international law. This is codifying it. And therefore, uh, Congress hasn't done anything explicitly to override it. Now, the US Supreme Court case in Hamdan did not stop the Congress. And the Congress then went ahead and said that uh, the kind of pretrial review that uh, Hamdan was su suing for to keep himself from being detained indefinitely uh, could be a whole lot less than what the Supreme Court said. And the Supreme Court wouldn't do anything about it because Congress has the authority to override these treaty and customary international law obligations. Now, Miriam, whatever her last name is, Gur Aryeh, I don't know how to, I don't know anything about Hebrew, but anyway, her critique uh, of this is to say that uh, the court should have reduced, changed, declared the necessity doctrine either unconstitutional or at least inconsistent with the basic law of Israel because it's too broad. And in addition to the fact that she, she argues that you do not uh, have the authority to use the necessity defense against people who are not directly involved in the criminal acts that you're trying to stop, the other problem is that the necessity defense is, in practice, completely open to abuse. Because once you open the door to saying claiming necessity, you've also opened the door for claiming prospectively what you're going to justify retrospectively. Now, self-defense is obviously an ambiguous concept. You know that the United States claimed anticipatory self-defense, if not preventive war, as opposed to the classic definition of self-defense, which is unpremeditated and instantaneous response to protect yourself in that instant. And clearly, the self-defense justification, I would say, does not, that she uses, does not fit that classic definition of self-defense. She has a more anticipatory doctrine. You know, we're defending ourselves in the future as opposed to now. We're collecting information not just about specific attacks, but how terrorists think, who they recruit, all the kinds of information you'd like to have if you wanted to be on top of um, planning uh, an operation that will reduce the threat to a given country. So to conclude, the Israeli Supreme Court case is extremely important. It struck down all these acts as illegal. It remained left open the necessity defense that exists in civil law countries and in the International Criminal Court Code. 
And the necessity defense leaves us open to at least two criticisms, either the general one, that torture has been banned by the treaty and therefore should be absolutely banned without a necessity defense, since the torture convention says there's absolutely no justification for ever using torture, which is severe pain, etc., as opposed to cruel and human degrading treatment or punishment, which you know it, it leaves open the door, and whatever that how you define these terms, of course, is extremely difficult. And her her argument, which is that the necessity defense harms the innocent and opens the door for abuse in practice because it's just too vague. But of course, the same criticism can be said about her def definition of the use of self-defense because what some people regard as self-defense is not appropriate in the modern age of asymmetric attacks, suicidal terrorism, uh, the doctrine of unlawful combatants being applied in practice to mean that you know, you can't fight these people because they hide as civilians, and therefore you've got to protect yourself against civilians not fighting fair in the Western concept of this act. Any questions or comments? Do you find this decision troubling or important or what? What do you think? No comments? Any comments? Questions? Anyone? Yeah. SS officers or army officers for uh, torture and I'm not an Israel expert on Israel I don't know but I'd be happy to learn um, my guess is they haven't prosecuted anyone first of all you know I'm sure the GSS stopped using the Shabak position stopped using shaking um, they there's a zillion other techniques you know okay so we can't do this so we'll do something else right yeah. You know, the Bush administration stopped waterboarding after, I don't know the exact year, but certainly by 2004, if not 2003. And it's generally said in the news media that the Obama administration uses the same techniques that the Bush administration used in the second term. Well, I got news for you. Um, what they're using in the second term of Bush and, and Obama strikes me as torture. It may not be as bad as waterboarding. And, you know, it's kind of like the media fixates on one specific thing, which is waterboarding, right? Because pouring water down somebody's throat or putting a wet cloth over your face and asking you to breathe a wet cloth, which, which is actual suffocation. It's just temporary. And of course, the Israeli GSS, like Americans, have doctors there to make sure you don't die, except people do die quite a lot. Uh, I'm sure the Americans have killed about 12 detainees because either the doctors didn't do their jobs or what have you. And putting aside the issue of the Hippocratic Oath that all doctors take everywhere in the world, which is, everyone know what the first rule is? First, do no harm. So you got doctors presiding over harm, violating their Hippocratic Oath. Um, they're not doing it. They're doing it. They're part of the team, aren't they? I mean, it's like felony murder. Isn't felony murder, you know, you're just the driver, right? Are you guilty? The U.S. Supreme Court position is if a state has capital punishment um, and they don't even know who pulled the trigger, but you're part of the team, you're just as guilty as the person who did pull the trigger, and you can be executed. That's U.S. constitutional law now. I don't know. You may agree with it. You may think that's an unjust rule of our, our Constitution, but that's the rule. I think I got it. I was going about the self-defense pre 
Preventive self-defense is not, does not fit that classical de definition. Anticipatory self-defense certainly is, is the, the lowest grade up, which okay. is that um, they got their troops on the border. You've got a gun in your pocket. You think uh, you've you got, a, let's say, 70% probability that that person has a gun and they're just waiting for the moment to sh pull the trigger. You know, in that Alfred Hitchcock movie uh, with... Uh, they're playing the music and, and they're waiting for the cymbals to crash to pull the trigger. How does that? You know, they're waiting for that moment, and, and the wife, um, who uh, says, uh, what was the song? Que sera sera? Doris Day. And I think it was Jimmy Stewart. Um, the man that knew too much. As opposed to preemptive. So, so, so. He's about to pull the trigger. He's waiting for the crash, the cymbals, so it's too loud so nobody would hear the gunshot go off. Um, and in a doctrine of anticipatory self-defense, you would say, well, you can shoot him before he pulls the trigger because you think that person, you, you know enough that he's going to do it. And that right? would be preemptive. Oh. That would be preemptive self-defense. That would go beyond the classic definition of self-defense. And the argument might be you still can't do it because you're not 100% sure. Wait, why does that go beyond the... Because, because the classic definition of Daniel Webster is an instant. It's an instantaneous, unpremeditated reaction to an immediate threat. And you know, you can that probably emerged. Oh, I mean, that that kind of rule emerged with the ideas that you don't have people saying, "I'm gonna, I shot you because I thought you might be dangerous." Preventive war says it's a self-defense justification to invade a country that might be a threat in the future particularly a nuclear threat. <laughs> that sounds preventive. Right, well, the, the, the Bush administration argued initially, they dropped it, but they argued it, that the United States had the authority to invade Iraq on the grounds of self-defense. I see, that's why law is complicated in specific cases, because a principle that sounds reasonable in the abstract may have unforeseen consequences, may not fit a lot of situations. And hard cases make bad law because they're not typical. But to make a rule that's generalizable out of a rare set of circumstances might not make any sense. And that leads to the law doing a lot of balancing tests between two competing values. All right, Ona Hathaway's article looks at countries that have ratified uh, torture convention and asks, does it make them change their behavior? If you look at page 202 and 203, you'll see that uh, ratification of the Convention Against Torture, also the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights as a torture ban, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was a non-binding treaty of the G General Assembly in 1948, also bans torture. In addition, of course, many people argue it's a peremptory norm and ought to be banned in all circumstances in case you find some justification for torture in practice. So who accepts the Convention Against Torture uh, and then specifically accepts Articles 21 and 22? Uh, and you'll find that, in general, uh, in the countries who have ratified against torture, countries that torture less have, only have, have accepted the con uh, torture convention less often than countries torture more, 41 versus 46%. So that's a very sad statement. That says a lot of countries ratify the torture convention just so they can say we don't do torture because it's illegal. And because it's secret, you can't prove that we do it. Well, maybe we can prove that you do it. 
So this is a disturbing effect about making mockery of law and similar statements may or may not hold true for domestic prohibitions on cruelty or torture. Um, if you look at allegations of torture as opposed to documentations of torture, it becomes more difficult because you're relying on subjective judgments by human rights groups that says a country practices torture. Also, human rights groups tend to focus on some countries more than others because they're more interesting, they're more in the news, there may be historical connections, or they just hold countries up to different standards. The double standards may reflect biases or perceptions that the bias is justified because you're a developed country and you ought to have better practices. But you can see that you know countries like South Africa is in the news, Palestine and Israel are in the news a lot, the United States is in the news a lot, and all these countries are accused of by Amnesty International of practicing torture all the time. Uh, but generally, the rates of ratification among dictatorships or authoritarian regimes uh, is much lower in terms of ratification in non-democratic countries than democratic countries. But it's not all that high. For example, 69% of democracies have ratified the torture convention. Now, the Israeli Supreme Court decision stated that democracies are going to win the war even if they lose the battle. The democracies fight terrorism with one hand tied behind their back. But ultimately, they're going to win the, the war rather than the battle. That is the state strategy rather than the tactics because democracies are more attractive systems, because they don't lower their standards, because they're more likely to convince terrorists to give up terrorism and give up this notion that the democracies are hypocrites who not only don't practice what they preach, but have a way of life that's <coughs> inferior. But the, the Israeli Supreme Court decision effectively admits that people are going to get killed as a result of, ban of banning torture. The Israeli Supreme Court decision does suggest, or at least has no evidence to contradict the GSS assertion that torture works that you do get information that lives have been saved. Now, if 69% of democracies, which is to say 31% of democracies have not ratified the torture convention, that's a way of saying some democracies feel that uh, that argument is not acceptable, that democracies have to defend themselves just like any other state, that if properly regulated, you can maintain your commitment to the rule of law by following the rules that have been established. And so long as the rule of law is established, that is, there's a legislative basis for these rules not coming just from some secret, non unaccountable, non-verified justification, but rather reviewed by the courts and upheld by the courts as consistent with the codes, and for those countries with the judicial review consistent with the Constitution, then that is still uh, acceptable on the grounds of the rule of law following process and procedures. One could argue that democracy could be defined differently, that democracy is a set of principles involving participation, <coughs> protecting human rights, torture violates human rights, then by definition torture is a, a reduction of the democratic quality of any country, just as censoring free speech would be. Did you have, Victor, a question? Yeah. 
I answered? Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay, so the issue then is who's right? Is it the fact that the democracies um, are following the logic of the Israeli Supreme Court decision, which basically says, as a last resort, you can have a necessity defense, but torture ought to be illegal because democracies will prevail in the end because uh, they have a fundamental commitment to civil liberties, a fundamental commitment uh, to accountability and transparency and to the rule of law, and on that basis will survive. And that also, if we compromise those values, not only will cease being democracies, we'll our actual security will be less because we will have less legitimacy in our own eyes, let alone in the eyes of others around the world. We'll have less support for our own leaders by our own people, and critics and enemies of the United States will be more likely to resort to terrorism because they see this kind of practice. As opposed to the argument that the French say, les démocraties doivent se défendre, the democracies ought to defend themselves. And it's just a fact of life that when you're at war, which is what terrorism is all about, you can't have the rule of law, or at least nearly to the same extent. You've got to have much more discretion, and you must be able to fight a war. Remember, the Israeli Supreme Court decision is a clear endorsement to the principle uh, of anti-exceptionalism, to the idea that criminal justice laws should govern society, not the rules of war, which are inherently <coughs> undemocratic, even if they're legal. And in effect, one can intuit and infer that the reason that so many democracies ratify conventions they don't follow, and why many democracies don't even follow the principles of what most people, at least scholars, would say are requirements of democracy, is that they basically have concluded, as the Bush administration has concluded, and implicitly, the Obama administration has concluded, although unlike the Bush administration, the Obama administration does believe in using the criminal justice system because they do want to try those 10 9-11 defendants. And just yesterday's paper had an article that the subway bomber whose plot was foiled in New York City, who had every intention of killing tens or hundreds or even thousands of people in the subway with a bomb, pled guilty. And so in that second example, the Obama administration has used the criminal justice system to punish at least one individual who was involved, who came to the United States to blow up a bomb in New York City, as opposed to keeping him in indefinite detention as an unlawful combatant, et cetera. And he's obviously very likely to get a life sentence without parole for having done this. And he plea bargained, presumably, because he didn't want to get executed. So if I was going to believe in capital punishment, I suppose one justification for classic capital punishment, aside from all the other things you debate about, you know, absolute, about mistakes, about what's cruel or not, you could say capital punishment, at least in this case, got someone to plead guilty, allowed the use of the criminal justice system as opposed to war, which strengthens, oddly enough, even paradoxically, uh, the democratic nature of American society. I, they were using his mother as a leverage, I think. Oh, were they? The, oh, so they were doing the what? The father and the brother, maybe, or the uncle, and as I understand it. I didn't know that. that I, I don't I think that was an anonymous source, but they were Were they going to threaten the, rest, the mother? Threaten the rest of the mother, too, as part of it. As a conspirator? I guess. Well, I guess in U.S. law, if you know 
even if you're not an accomplice, if you have knowledge, I, I think, I don't know, does anyone know? Do you have an obligation to report somebody if you know they're about to commit a crime and you're not their lawyer or priest, for which their confidentiality? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. If, they, if they're about, if you know they're going to or if they have, you have an obligation, otherwise you can be charged with accessories. Yeah. Okay, so if that's the case, the question would be, was, did the mother really know or not? And you'll recall from the article on U.S. practices that we read about two weeks ago that under U.S. constitutional doctrine and under U.S. law, the police are allowed to lie and deceive. It is not illegal whatsoever for the police to lie to you. They can read you Miranda rights, right? And they also can say, if you call your lawyer, we're going to really get you. And there are lots and lots of abuses about... so. It's quite possible that they deceived this guy and said, You're, we're going to lock up your mother. She's, she's guilty as accomplice. Unless you plead guilty, she's going to spend a life in prison too. I'm sure they did. You're sure they lied? Well, I mean, maybe the mother did know. Maybe the mother was proud of her son, the martyr. I mean, she was, he was preparing suicidal mission that failed because he got caught. Um, and you can imagine the psychological impact of a suicidal attack in Times Square subway station, which in rush hour has thousands of people coming through every five minutes, or I think that's right, certainly hundreds. Um, a couple of points about the reading that we've been uh, discussing on, uh, from the Best Way Binder for today. In looking at Article 7, we talked about Article 8 last time, which was war crimes. Article 7, again, is crimes against humanity. I wanted to make the distinction between non-international and international conflict. I mentioned this was crucial for Article 8, which are war crimes, because in effect, the first part of Article 8, Paragraph 2, uh, this deals with the grave breaches provision of the Geneva Conventions, which gives universal jurisdiction. But only applies to international conflicts. Common Article 3, which I mentioned earlier today, is for non-international conflicts, that is civil wars. That is, 95% of wars in the world today are governed by Article 3 of the four Geneva Conventions, which is also included in the statute. In Crimes Against Humanity, this is not a relevant distinction. The doctrine of crimes against humanity was invented by the Nuremberg Court in 1946 as the third count along with crimes against the peace and war crimes, crimes of war, crimes of peace, and crimes against humanity. What, what the Nuremberg Court considered crimes against humanity we call genocide now. But Crimes against humanity do not have to take place in war at all, even though almost all of them do, just as almost all genocides take place in war, even though that too doesn't have to take place during war. In fact, genocide, the crime of all crimes, is a crime against humanity, a subset of the crimes against humanity. So one thing you need to understand for your moot court is if you're arguing about war crimes, there's a big distinction about what you can do in terms of internal versus external war. Your case is an international war. So there are many, many more counts you can prosecute 
for grounds of war crimes, even though they're not, quote unquote, as serious as crimes against humanity. For crimes against humanity, the key distinctions, again, is the contextual element, an armed attack against a civilian population, and a degree of persecution as one of the key material elements. You know, is there an attempt to do this because you are part of some kind of group? And the persecution element is similar uh, to the one that was established